Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another live episode of the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min Football family with me, Harry Simiu. It's our last episode of 2023. And I wish that we had something positive to talk about because generally 2023 has been a year of great improvement when it comes to Arsenal Football Club and this team. But of course, we finished the year on a sour note. We finished the year with a really, really disappointed and potentially very damaging defeat at Craven Cottage against a Fulham side that I think had lost their last three going into this game. So look, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. I think I have a lot to say, um, which I want to try and put across in the calmest and most measured way possible. I want to try and make my points in a clear and concise way, because I think there's no point in sitting there going, oh, well, it's this person's fault or it's that person's fault and sort of singling out certain individuals. I think there are individuals that we all know didn't perform today, didn't perform against West Ham and haven't performed at other points this season yet still continue to play in the team and continue to be a makeup um, or, or part of the makeup of Mikel Arteta's squad. I think there's loads that we can get into here. I think there's loads that we can unpick, but I think the biggest points and the most prevalent and important points are general points. And so I want to make sure that I put it across in that way. I can see there's loads of you in the live chat alongside me. Thank you for joining me because I know when you see a performance like that, which results in an outcome like that, it's not always the thing that you want to do, right? Sit down and relive it straight away. I mean, I just had a phone call with my dad a little while ago and um, and he was going on and on and on and on and on. And he made some really valid points, which some of which I'm going to relay because I agree with them. But it just got to the point where I was like, dad, I'll speak to you later because I don't want to talk about this right now. I kind of don't want to relive this right now. I need a bit of a breather. Here we are on the podcast, and the reason I'm recording it so soon after the full-time was because I want to get this out of the way so that I can park it, put it to one side, and hopefully enjoy my New Year's Eve. What I do want to say before we dive into the match itself is thank you for all of your support over the course of 2023. It's been amazing. Um, I had a quick glance at the numbers earlier today. Um, haven't done any sort of proper breakdown, but we've hit over 3 million views slash downloads on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast uh, over the course of 2023, which is incredible. We've gained thousands of subscribers. Um, I've had some amazing opportunities in my relatively new career as a result of this podcast being the footing of that. So thank you all so, so much from the bottom of my heart. And I do wish you all a really, really happy 2024 and hopefully 2024 um, goes well for the Arsenal as well. I know we all want that. Um, that's a kind of common desire that we all have. But just wanted to say that before I go off on a rant and go off complaining about what we saw from Arsenal today. Worst possible way, as I say, to end 2023. So the question is, you know, what has happened to Arsenal? What's gone wrong in not just today's game, but also across the last five games, right? Because I read a stat earlier on, um, which is pretty poor. We've taken just four points from the last 15 available. Damage hasn't really been too 
um, too big because of some of the results that have gone on around us because of Manchester City being at the Club World Cup and all the rest of it. But if you look at the Premier League table now, it does look pretty bad. It does look pretty poor. I was at home today. I didn't go to Craven Cottage. I was watching the game from here uh, in the man cave uh, with my little one alongside me, with the boy um, who's starting to take some interest in football and Arsenal. And uh, of course, when he sees games like that, um, it's not going to help, is it? It's not going to help at all. But, you know, I heard sort of the analysis on Sky after the game and there seemed to be this, yeah, let's let's have a little bit of a go at Arsenal. Let's pull apart Arsenal's performance. Let's be critical of them. Um, and let's try and find the reasons why in this specific game it didn't work for them. But also, maybe this works for them because maybe now without having that pressure of being top of the pile, it suits them better because they crumbled last season. The fact that they're only actually two points off the top, I don't see it like that. I really, really don't. I think what's happened over the last couple of games is a massive kick in the balls for Arsenal. It really, really is. Um, the West Ham result, I didn't feel as strongly about because as I said to you guys on the post-match podcast, we turned up, we were the better team. We just weren't quite efficient enough when it mattered but the performance was one that if you replicated in 100 games, you'd win 99 of them. So there was a part of me that was like, OK, it's disappointing. OK, it's frustrating. And there are clearly things that we can do better. There are clearly ways that we can become more efficient in both boxes, as Mikel Arteta would put it. And, you know, the, the sort of difference between winning and losing was small, small details that you can rectify, that you can correct. My issue with today's performance is that we were awful all over the pitch in every single department. And I don't want to hear this, oh, well, you know, hold on a minute, because, you know, it is only two points, the gap between Liverpool and Arsenal. Liverpool have a game in hand at home to a Newcastle side that are out of form, that are dead on their feet. Newcastle are going to go to Anfield and they're going to get beat. And Liverpool are then going to open up a five-point lead over Arsenal. Arsenal are now level on points, but below Manchester City because of their far superior goal difference. And they've played a game less because of the Club World Cup. Aston Villa are two points ahead of us. You know, so... There's no way of dressing this up. And perhaps the worst part of all of this is that Tottenham, who, you know, having lost some players after a really positive start to the season, went on this really disappointing run and have been up and down ever since then. They're just a single point behind us now. Arsenal at this moment in time are in a race for the top four. And this has all come about because of, you know, the last five games. It's not just today. You know, it's not just about today. This is something that's come about because over the course of the last five games, we've not taken enough points. This is a league that in order for you to win it, you have to be nearly perfect. And Arsenal are nowhere near perfect at this moment in time. So I asked myself the question, what has happened to Mikel Arteta's Arsenal in recent weeks? Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year. 
producing a balanced budget, not just for football. And saving on travel because spending less on airfares means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancy dinner too. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast on your favourite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Well, the first point is the team looks knackered. The team looks absolutely shattered. It really, really does. And I appreciate that when you have injuries in certain areas, it means that you have to overplay people. It means that you have to persist with people that you know are in the red zone in terms of their fitness, in terms of their sharpness, you know could do with a breather. But when you've got injuries, for example, let's take the West Ham game the other night. And I said this on the post-match show. In an ideal world, you don't want to play Martinelli because I think he looks tired. I think his form has taken a massive dip as a result of that. And in an ideal world, you'd chuck Leandro Trossard in on the left flank and, you know, you'd give Martinelli that breather. But you couldn't because Kai Havertz was suspended. Then you go on to the other point. Well, hold on a minute. Then why didn't you play an Emil Smith-Rowe? Or why didn't you play a Reese Nelson? And you start to come to the conclusion that maybe it's because Mikel Arteta doesn't trust any of those two players. Not enough to start them in Premier League games. In which case, yeah, we've built out the squad over the course of last summer in terms of numbers. But is the depth really there if the manager doesn't see it that way? Or is he one of those managers that is just obsessed by the idea of having a smaller core group of players that he's always going to call on? Surely last season would tell you and would teach you that actually you can't do that anymore. Not in the modern game. You can't play Champions League football and, you know, and Premier League football and be in the cups and use the same set of 13, 14 players all the time. You're going to have to go, um, you know, bigger. You're going to have to be able to trust some of those players. And if you don't trust Reese Nelson, and if you don't trust um, Emil Smith-Rowe, and if you don't trust... Um, you know, a load of those players that are on the fringes, why are they here? Would be my next question. I can see in the chat that people are saying, uh, we literally have four injuries out of 26 players. Stop it, Harry. Um, what else have we got? Uh, ben says, knackered isn't an excuse. Same for all the top sides. Uh, Jay says, what I'm talking is a complete bollocks. Steve says, nonsense. And Gunner Galactico says, excuses, man. You must be paid well by the club. Yeah. I'm stinking rich. That's why I'm sitting here uh, recording a podcast on New Year's Eve. Um, look, I'm not defending what we saw out there today. I'm asking the question, what has happened to Arsenal? Why have they ended up in this position? Why have they ended up in this state? Why is it that three, four weeks ago, we were talking about Arsenal all of us, as being a better side, a side that can control games more, a side that have shown more maturity. And now, three, four weeks down the line, we're talking about it completely differently. I'm trying to get to the bottom of what has happened. And I want to hear from you guys in the live chat what has happened. Don't just say, we're shit, he's shit, the manager's shit, Havertz is shit, uh, Raya's shit. I don't want to hear any of that because that isn't giving me what I want. I want an explanation of what's gone wrong at Arsenal in recent weeks. I'm going to share with you mine. And if you choose to agree with it or not, that is up to you. Tired legs is something that I do think is a factor, but it's not an excuse. 
I think the biggest problem and the bigger problem here is that, in my opinion, Arsenal have been figured out. Now, what do I mean by that? We play in a very specific way. We have very specific patterns in which we like to build up. There are very specific movements that certain players take. And there isn't all that much variation to our game at times. And I think over the past few weeks, teams have worked out what it is um, that they need to do in order to nullify us as much as possible. And they've also figured out how they can hurt us. We talked a lot last season, especially about how much better we were from set pieces. We talked a lot uh, about, um, you know, how much more efficient we were at both ends when it comes to set pieces. I think we've been sussed out from set pieces as well. Go back to the game on Thursday night when Mavropanos starts at the far post and makes that dash across the near post, knowing that the only way anybody's going to stop him is if a Zinchenko or a Martinelli, who aren't renowned for, um, you know, their aerial ability, following him and winning the duel, which is never going to happen. So I'm asking the question, what's happened to Arsenal? And I think the two starting points from which I want to then filter down and go a little bit more nuanced and into a little bit more detail are tired legs, which I think is a factor, but not an excuse. Let me be clear on that. But I also think we've been figured out. I think both of those points are valid. And I think both of those points have a lot of substance to them. And we're going to dive into that on this episode of the podcast. What I do want to do, though, just before we continue, is ask you guys, if you haven't done so already, to please leave a like on the video because it really, really does help. If you're watching us on YouTube, leave a like. If you're listening on audio, please do subscribe on whatever platform it is uh, that you're joining us from. It really, really does help. I was on. Um, talk sport literally 10 minutes after the the full-time whistle i spoke to sam matterface and of course former gunner perry groves and and one of the statistics that sam matterface reached for was the one around our xg he said the arsenal have got the lowest xg within the top five in the premier league at this moment in time now i haven't checked this and i'm not saying that sam would be wrong because he's normally very very good with that stuff so you know i'm going to take his word on that that we've got the lowest xg in the top five. That doesn't surprise me. That doesn't surprise me in the slightest. I think what was working for Arsenal up until a point this season was that, yes, our XG was lower than it was last season and was lower than that of some of the teams that we're competing with. But the XG against was also... I beg your pardon. I've got the sneezes. The XG against was really low as well. And because the XG against was low, we still had the biggest XG difference between XG4 and XG against, which meant that we were efficient at both ends of the pitch. So not only were we taking the few chances that we were creating, but we were also not conceding soft goals at the other end of the pitch. And the combination of those two departments functioning efficiently, if not at their best, was propping us up and we're seeing us pick up results and pick up points. That has changed because we're not converting the limited chances that we're creating now, which, you know, you can't afford to do when your XG is low. But we're also considering silly, silly goals, 
silly, silly goals at the back. Think about the goals that we've conceded over the last two games that we've lost. The first one against West Ham, we could talk about whether the ball was out or not. And we discussed that at length after that game. But the defensive play in the lead up to that was appalling, really, really poor. And there's a common theme, by the way, between that goal and the goal that we saw at Fulham, the equaliser today. And I'll come on to that in a little bit. Remind me if I forget. But that goal was shocking in its nature. And the second one from a set piece is the type of goals that Arsenal wouldn't have given away earlier on in the season. So what's happened? Why is that happening now? Um, Let's start with Mikel Arteta's team selection, if we're going to kind of just focus in on today for a minute. Zinchenko was out with an injury. So the, the idea of bringing Jakub Kivior in was not um, Mikel Arteta trying to overcomplicate things. This was an enforced change. Some would argue that if Takehiro Tomiyasu was fit enough to be on the bench, he was fit enough to start. I disagree with that. I think that Tomiyasu was brought back into the squad because we are short. But in an ideal world, had Kivior's game gone okay, had Arsenal managed to double the lead after taking an early lead through Bukayo Saka, I think actually you wouldn't have seen Tommy Asu come on at all. I don't think that Arsenal um, really wanted him to be involved, but things were so bad, I thought, for Kivior in that first half. Um, Mikel Arteta felt that he had no choice. Kai Havertz returned to the starting eleven to replace Trossard in that midfield position, and Eddie Nketiah was preferred to Gabriel Jesus up front. A couple of mates of mine, non-Arsenal fans, text me when the team news came out. Why is Nketiah starting ahead of Gabriel Jesus? Well. Gabriel Jesus has copped a lot of flack over the last 48 hours or so because of his failure to convert uh, a couple of headed chances against West Ham United. People have been stirring up that discussion again. Do we need a striker? Why don't we go and get Ivan Tony? Gabriel Jesus is not the killer that we all um, need him to be up front, etc. We've heard it all over um, the media over the last few days. Gabriel Jesus was out with an injury that was pretty serious um, during the course of last season, worked his way back to fitness, had a few setbacks, had to have a minor bit of surgery on that knee problem um, to kind of get it fixed, to take some some damaged tissue out, I think is what we were told at the time. And he's been worked into the ground of late. So I don't have a problem with Mikel Arteta looking at Jesus and saying, you probably need to be protected a bit. What I have a problem with is that the the player that we bring in to replace him is not of the same standard, is not of the same level. Um, Do I think that if Gabriel Jesus played today, we would have definitely won the game? No, I don't, because I think the performance across the board was so poor and so below par that it's totally unfair to say something like that. Mikel Arteta's team selection was not the reason that we didn't win the game today. It was the application that we saw from the players on the pitch. There was no hunger. There was no desire. Physically, we weren't able to compete with a Fulham side that, as I say, had come into this game on rotten form. There was a lot of issues that go way, way beyond the 11 that he picked. The pre-match coverage was all about a lack of goals. Um, There was the the point made that before the game, uh, our front three had only scored 10 Premier League goals between them and that Jared Bowen had got 11, and that Son had got 11, and all of that. And everybody was talking about sort of Arsenal's problem there. And then four minutes in, we take the lead. And it was a good bit of quick thinking, I thought, from David Raya to release the ball. 
um, onto Rice. He releases Martinelli in space. And that's what Martinelli wants. He wants to get the ball, look up, see grass in front of him and go. And that's what he did. And he worked his way towards the box and he managed to cut in. And he got a decent effort off, I thought, which Bern Leno saved well. But Bakayo Saka, who was following up from the right-hand side, was on hand to turn it in. And you thought, good. That's what we needed. That kind of positive start to just kind of settle the nerves after what was a really disappointing um, result against West Ham United. And when you sometimes come off the back of a game like the one against West Ham, where, look, I'm not saying Arsenal were great against West Ham. I've never said that. But I don't think that what we got was what we deserved. You know, if we had drawn the game nil-nil, I would have said that would have been, you know, certainly a more fair result and a more fair reflection of what we actually witnessed rather than uh, West Ham, who created nothing all night, scoring twice. And sometimes when you suffer a result like that, when it's one that, you know, you you feel you should have got more out of, but you didn't, it can work one of two ways. You can either look at it and go, well, it just wasn't our night. We did the basics right. Stick to what we did well and the results will come. You either channel it that way or it can make you a bit nervous and it can make you a bit panicky. Um, and I think that, you know, when you score a goal after four minutes, that should settle the nerves. That should kill that panic. That should kill that anxiety maybe that you have in the back of your mind as a player. But then very quickly after we scored that goal, I think you saw Fulham start to wrestle some control over of the game. And and that was for a number of reasons. So I thought they did a really good job of exposing us in the wide areas. Timothy Castagna coming forward down that right-hand side was roasting Jakob Kivior. Now, I've said this about Kivior before. I think he's a good footballer. I think he's a good centre-half. I don't think he's a good fullback. I just don't. I just don't see it. I think that he doesn't understand the position 100%. And why would he? He's hardly played there. I think it's very harsh to judge someone who's been thrown in on a handful of occasions into a totally different position in a competitive side that's expected to win every single game in this league. Well, maybe with the exception of when they face... Manchester City or Liverpool. But the big, big worry for me was not really with Kivior's positioning, was not really with the fact that he's struggling to come to grips with what exactly in terms of starting position and all the rest of it, that position requires. My big concern and my big worry was how slow he looked. Timothy Castagna took him on and roasted him um, on a couple of occasions. Really, really did. So that was a worry. Then you look at the way that Fulham's equaliser comes about. And what's happened is Arsenal have tried to apply pressure. Arsenal have tried to make something happen um, around the edge of the Fulham box. But Kyo Saka, in my opinion, has to do more to protect the ball there than he does. Arsenal get dispossessed. And what happens? Fulham look at how they can expose one of the big, big weaknesses in this Arsenal side, which for me is the fact that we essentially ask Declan Rice to play in midfield by himself. As a result of that, you end up with your centre-halves being reluctant to split. And the reason they're reluctant to split is because they don't feel that in front of them, in a central area, there is enough cover. So their first inclination would be, as centre-backs, as it should be, is to funnel the attack out to one of the flanks. Why? Because you're less likely to score directly from a flank, but you're also buying your teammates time to get back in, support you and help you. 
Willian picks up the ball on the left-hand side. Again, Fulham well aware of the fact that Arsenal's current shape, because of what they were trying to do just a few seconds prior, means that there are lots and lots of spaces in the wide area. So what does Kearney do? He doesn't hang around in the middle of the pitch, hoping to pick up the ball in a pocket that Declan Rice can't get to. He doesn't dwell on the edge of the box. As soon as he sees William receive the ball, he looks out and he makes that underlapping run from the centre of the pitch out to the wide area. And he does that because that is what they've been told to do. That is where they have figured out Arsenal are vulnerable because we push our fullbacks into midfield. And if they work the ball into a wide area, you will eventually draw Saliba and Gabriel out. You'll create a bigger gap between them and you'll be able to find someone in the box if you work it well enough who can do the damage. The cross into the box was brilliant. Jakub Kivior doesn't defend it well enough, in my opinion. He doesn't have a clue where Raul Jimenez is in behind him and he doesn't do enough um, to make the challenge and, and even try and put the guy off. Fair play to Raul Jimenez. He's come back into form. Um, he's been brilliant of late. He's just come back from suspension. You know, he obviously suffered that horrific injury against us when playing for Wolves. Um, obviously, I'm not happy that he scored against us, but I'm happy for him generally that he's been able to get his career back on track because he went through a really, really difficult period. But that's neither here nor there right now. The point I'm trying to make is that we have been figured out, we have been sussed out, not just in terms of what we seek to do in an attacking phase of play, but we've also been sussed out in terms of the vulnerabilities um, that our high press can cause. And that has been exacerbated this season by the fact that we no longer have two midfield players who have that defensive instinct. When that would happen last season, Xhaka would drop. Partey would be naturally in that deeper position. And the two of them would do enough to hold something up, to hold off an attack, to allow Saliba and Gabriel to stay in the positions that they want to. And that would become like a four like a box of four, and they would protect the real core danger areas, funnel it all out wide, and that would give everybody else a chance to get back. And that's why, over the course of the last year, generally speaking, aside from the last few weeks, we've been far better equipped and more effective at dealing with transitional situations. But you take that bit of balance away, and you then demand it all of Declan Rice, and what you are doing is you are relying on Declan Rice, who's a wonderful player, to deliver nine out of ten performances week in, week out. And to be fair to the guy, most of the time he's been able to do that. And that's why most of the time this season we've not been punished for it. But you can't expect him to produce that level. I don't care if he cost three hundred million pounds. You can't expect any one man to produce that level every single week. So there are issues with the way that we play and the fact that for me, it's really obvious now, the patterns are really obvious. And, you know, if I can see it and you can see it, then a top group of coaches and scouts and analysts from a Premier League club are going to see it at first glance. And that for me is the problem. And that's where we need to shake things up a little bit. I just want to take a couple of super chats. Don't worry, I will get to more of your comments um, as the show goes on. So please do keep them coming. Just a quick reminder, if you haven't done so already, 
please do leave a like on the video uh, if you are watching us um, on YouTube. Uh, we've got a good amount of you live with us right now. Hundreds of you are with us right now. We've only got 72 likes on the board. So let's pick that up. Uh, thank you. If you're listening on audio, please do leave us a review as well. That really, really does help. Let's take this super chat from Abdullahi, who says, we buy leftover players from the teams um, who challenge to win the league. Make it make sense. Sack the apprentice, hire a manager. By the way, there will be no top four finish. See, I appreciate the super chat. I'm very, very grateful for it. But I have an issue with people saying that we should be sacking the manager now after that. Is it that bad? Have we got to that point where you're going to sit there and, and call for a manager to be sacked? I think that's incredibly harsh. And this is the bit that I don't like when we suffer results like this. Well, obviously, I don't like the result full stop, but this is the bit that angers me and winds me up. And people always say, oh, Harry, you're so defensive um, of Arsenal. You know, you're you're on the club's payroll. That's the, that's the classic line. Oh, man, if I had one pound for every time I heard that, either in the chat box here or on social media, I wouldn't need to work. I'd be sitting on my ass right now in the Caribbean somewhere on a beach enjoying life. It's nothing to do with that. The reason I come across as defensive when I hear stuff like that is because I think it's totally knee-jerk. It's totally overreactionary. The same people that said Mikel Arteta um, was awful and that the best we could achieve with him was eighth are now upset because we're not going to win the league at a canter. So, you know, it doesn't make sense. You know, which is it? Which is it? Like, it, that's the bit that drives me mad that the overreactionary nature um, from some fans. It just, I understand that in the heat of the moment, you're upset, you're wound up, you're frustrated. Me too. Okay. But I just think sometimes people just need to take a step back and think about what they're saying. And Abdullah, you are more than entitled to your opinion and I respect your opinion. But to me, it's just, it's unfathomable at this stage to be calling for Mikel Arteta's head. It's a nonsense. I'm sorry. That's how I feel about it. Um, John says, uh, well, he doesn't say anything, but he's very, very kindly uh, donated uh, to the channel. John, thank you uh, so, so much. Loads of your questions coming in. We'll get to as many of them as we possibly can a little bit later on in the show. I've just got a couple more points that I want to make before I forget them. Um, Nabil, uh, with a very, very kind Super Chat donation as well, says, no Thomas, no Partey. Our attackers just didn't simultaneously die this season. Uh, we've become Horseshoe FC and it was even more apparent without Zinchenko. I want to make a point on Zinchenko because I've been one of the people that says that defensively he's a problem and that defensively he makes us vulnerable. And I completely agree with that and, and still believe that, I should say. The issue is that without him, we just have far, far less control in football matches. And that is because he's normally very good at retaining possession. He's normally very responsible on the ball. We have seen in the last few weeks him be a little bit irresponsible in possession, but that's been out of character for Zinchenko. And I think that's why a lot of people have kind of, you know, jumped on that and gone, well, hold on a minute. Is he really suffering here? Because why on earth is that happening? Um, but I also think if you have a more conventional fullback in Zinchenko's absence, that brings you you know, the defensive side that your traditional fullback would bring you, but then also give you maybe an overlap, then you can just slightly tweak your game and still be effective. Um, it means that your midfield players don't have to drift out into wide areas because your width is going to be provided by that natural fullback. We just don't seem to have either at the moment. It's either Zinchenko, 
who is essentially a midfield player or a centre-back at left-back. That's where we've got a bit of a problem. And, and I saw lots of people the other day saying, oh, well, you know, we should bring Kieran Tierney back. For me, that's not going to happen. And I think it's really, really easy to be revisionist. Like, Kieran Tierney hasn't been able to establish himself in our way of playing for a little while. That was going on for a long time. Plus, he's one of those players that is injured quite frequently. And I can understand why Arteta wanted to move away from him. Could we do with him today? Of course we could, but that's because we've been without Tomiyasu and we've been without Julian Timber. Had those two been fit, I don't think anybody would have even mentioned Kieran Tierney's name. And that's the issue um, that I've got with a lot of this. It's the same with the people saying, oh, look at Unai Emery. He's above Mikel Arteta now. Unai Emery presided over some of the worst days I've ever experienced as an Arsenal fan. And that is not even a reflection necessarily of Unai Emery as a manager overall, but it's just the flip-flopping that I can't take. When Unai Emery was in charge, at the beginning, it was great, fine. It looked good. It looked like we were making progress. But as the months went on, it became clearer and clearer that there was no plan. There was no idea. There was no um, sort of synchronicity between him and the football club in terms of who was coming in, who was going out. He clearly lost the dressing room. Everything went wrong at the end of Unai Emery's tenure. To, to be sitting there now saying, oh, let's get Unai Emery back. Oh, we made this awful, awful error, an awful, awful mistake. Getting rid of Unai Emery is also as a nonsense and as much of a nonsense as saying that Mikel Arteta should be sacked tonight after that result. I'm sorry, but like just the revisionism is, is, is honestly, it's it's embarrassing. It really, really is. It really, really is. It's awful. It's really bad. Sorry, but that that stuff, it needs to stop. It, it really, really does. Um, I mean, on today's game, because I'm I'm just conscious that I'm talking very, very generally about Arsenal right now. I think it's really clear that we haven't got good enough players in some of the positions still in terms of the ones that we can call upon. And that causes a problem when any one or two individuals are not quite at their peak level. Um, I think that, you know, Nketiah playing up front, it's just not the same as Gabriel Jesus in terms of the all-round game. And actually, maybe for some of you that were sitting there slagging off Gabriel Jesus after the other night and calling him every name under the sun, which there was a lot of that going on, by the way, maybe for, for, for those people, Actually, you needed to watch what unfolded today, which was Arsenal having a total lack of cohesion in attack and having a total lack of imagination because the man that strings most of it together was not on the pitch to make it happen. Our press was less effective as well uh, from a defensive standpoint. So maybe some people needed to see that to put some respect on Gabriel Jesus's name. Uh, Leo says, why don't we ever swap the wingers? Not every time should they be cutting in onto their better foot. Try Saka on the left, driving down the line, getting balls in quicker. I agree with this, by the way. I would like to see that happen. I would like to see that interchange happen more often. I'd even like to see Jesus taking up some of the wide positions at times with Saka or Martinelli going in at centre forward for a, a bit. You know, what we have seen at times this season is Havertz pushing on that little bit further and becoming uh, sort of an auxiliary centre-forward in-game and Jesus dropping into the midfield. But you're right, we don't see the interchange between left-winger and right-winger. And I think that is something that we could do, yeah, to vary it up a little bit. Because as I say, I really do believe 
that Arsenal um, have been sussed out. Now, Turfer says the manager shouldn't be sacked. His position should, however, be assessed at the end of the season if the team doesn't win a trophy. That is a fair point. That is a fair point put across sensibly. If at the end of the season, Arsenal turn out to have regressed, and that is partly as a result of some of the major decisions that Mikel Arteta took over last summer, then I think that we can sit here and we can have a conversation about whether or not it can get better and whether or not some of those mistakes ended up you know, causing us to, to fall behind rather than actually uh, propelling us up to the level that we want to be. I think if we get to the end of the season and we're still having these conversations, I think that's a very, very valid discussion to have. And that's how it should be put. Not sack him, get him out, he's useless, blah, 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 blah. Do I think he's made mistakes in recent weeks? Yeah. And I'll tell you, I mentioned to you guys earlier, right at the top of the program, that um, I, I'd spoken to my dad a little bit earlier on. Now, my dad, for those of you that don't know, is a, a lifelong Arsenal fan. Um, grew up in the area, um, has been going since he was a little kid, still goes now, um, and he's at the Emirates Stadium, you know, week in, week out, supporting and getting behind a team. My dad is the most biased Arsenal fan, I think, on earth. Like, anything that goes against us, even if it's, like, questionable, my dad won't have it. My dad is the, is the guy that will say, everyone hates us, everyone's against us. Well, like, he's so, so pro-Arsenal, it's unreal. So when he comes out and criticizes Arsenal and picks up the phone and rings me to tell me that this is wrong and that is wrong, I listen because I know that it's taken a lot for him to say that. And he's had to really dive deep um, into his kind of soul to find uh, that little bit of criticism so that he can then put it out um, into the air. But one of the things he said to me a few weeks ago, and I didn't have it at the time, by the way, um, I, I'm not going to say I totally dismissed it, but. I didn't really think there was much credence to it, um, you know, when he said it initially, but as time's gone on, maybe it's right, was about the PSV Eindhoven game away uh, from home. Now, in that game, we changed it up a little bit. I think we made six or seven changes, didn't we? But what happened later on in that game, because we were struggling a little bit, was that Mikel Arteta, rather than just saying, let the game go, who cares? We've won the group. It doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. What he did was bring on Rice and bring on Odegaard and give minutes and, and take risks with people that should never have been risked, in my opinion, in those circumstances. And he said that that was going to catch up with us over the next few weeks. The fact that those players had to be involved in that game. And if I start off the show by talking about fatigue and talk about the fact that this has been a thing, I think, for a number of weeks, how can I not? go back to that comment and think, think actually, yeah, maybe you had a point there. Sometimes you don't see these things at the time. Sometimes, you know, you, you see them later down the line and it's easy with hindsight to go, look, bang, I told you. But I really do think the more I think about that, that this problem around fatigue and, and the lack of rotation and this insistence on using the same people every single week, even when it's not needed, even in dead rubber games like this is a problem. Um, you know, I, I I go back to that now and, and I think, yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, keep your questions coming. There's some really, really good ones coming in the chat um, and I'm going to pick up some of them uh, in a moment. I'm favoriting some of them so that I can pick them out nice and easily. 
If we run through uh, the individual performances very, very quickly after this short pause, uh, then we'll turn our attentions to your questions and we'll finish off the show with that. Because like, as much as I'd like to sit and microanalyze every element of this game, I, I'm finding it difficult because I am very dejected and very, very disappointed. I know that's what you come here for, analysis and opinion. And I am giving you opinion, but I feel like I've had to make general and more wider points because... I think we could see this coming. Um, you know, yeah, of course, I hoped that Arsenal were going to go out today and put it all right and blow uh, Fulham out of the water. And I hoped that when we took the lead as early as we did the way we did, that we were going to go on and, and blitz them. But it didn't happen. But if I search deep down, I think I can say that this has probably been coming for a few weeks, which is why so many of my points feel general. And, and feel sort of wider than just this particular fixture. But look, short pause. I'll talk about some individual performances and then it'll be your questions until the end of the show. So start filling up the chat box. Welcome back along to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast with me, Harry Simiou. Um, As I say, keep your questions coming and we'll work our way through as many of those as we possibly can between now and the end of the show. Um, individual performances, David Raya. Um, I've got nothing to say on David Raya's performance. Didn't think he did anything wrong. I thought he did quite well in terms of releasing the ball nice and early in the build-up to Arsenal's goal. Quick thinking, good to see. Um, but yeah, other than that, I haven't really got much to add. Ben White, I didn't think was very good today. I, I, I know that people, you know, poked fun at Willian when he was an Arsenal player. I think he looked, or has looked, since going back to Fulham, actually really good. Um, and I think he's really um, impacted for this Fulham side. And they're managing him really well in terms of his minutes, um, making sure that at his age, he's still able to contribute effectively. And you'd expect Ben White to have an easier time against someone uh, of Willian's profile and age than he did. So credit should go to Willian. Saliba and Gabriel were okay. Um, you know, they were okay. I keep talking about that lack of balance in midfield that we're seeing, I think, in recent weeks. And the extra demands that it puts on them. Add to that that we've got a problem at left-back right now and the extra demand that places on Gabriel. And I think we've got a problem. Um, I also think that Ben White might be carrying something in terms of an injury. Doesn't look 100% for me. And again, when I'm talking about the other side and Zinchenko or Kivi or adding to Gabriel's workload, it's only fair that I look at the other side um, and say, uh, yeah, that Saliba's probably having to do a bit more than to... to to prop up Ben White, who isn't in amazing form. Um, Declan Rice was not at his brilliant best today, but you can't expect that from him every week, um, particularly when he's got to cover as much ground as is demanded of him in this system. Odegaard, again, was trying to make things happen. He was at least trying to take the ball by the uh, take the, the ball by the horns and, and make things happen, but it just didn't come off for him. Um, Havertz was really quiet today, and I thought that, you know, he, he would have felt that he had a bit of a point to prove because he was out of the side the other night. A lot of us came away thinking, hold on a minute. Um, you know, th this is a player that that has uh, gone under the radar at times in terms of his importance. A lot of us were beating that drum and banging that drum and felt that what happened against West Ham was, um, you know, indicative of his importance. Yet, no, um, you know, he, he wasn't he wasn't good today. Martinelli started the game brightly, but faded very, very quickly. Again, the fatigue point comes into play here. I know some of you are saying that I'm using it as an excuse. I'm not. 
I'm saying it is a factor in this conversation and in this discussion that needs to be um, mentioned. You know, it, it's not the be all and end all, but it's a part of it. There's no doubt about that. Why should we overlook it? It's an important point. And it goes back to the point about not trusting the squad. And although we propped up the numbers, still having a number of players within the group that Mikel Arteta clearly, despite what he says, does not trust to go out there and do the job in certain games. Saka was okay, but, you know, again, not at the level that we know he can be. And then Ketia, I thought, apart from a bit of chasing around and bumping into people, was pretty average. So that's my thoughts on some of the individual performances. Let's get um, a load of your questions now because I've got a, a fair few saved and keep them coming. I'll pick out as many as I can between now and 6pm. Let's work our way uh, through. Abdullah with another super chat says, Arteta is not responsible for what's going on at Arsenal. Um, maybe you are responsible, Harry, because you are the Arsenal boss or the owner. Honestly, you'd think I was the, the way some people come at me and blame me. Uh, when Arsenal lose a game or drop points, it's, it's honestly it's wild. It really, really is. Um, but thank you for your very kind donation, uh, mate. Thank you. Um, let's take this one from Finn Muller. Do you think there's something going on behind the scenes with Emil Smith-Rowe that we're not aware of? Not playing a single minute in a game that we were desperate for someone to make runs and carry the ball in sends a message. I had this conversation with someone um, over the course of the weekend. Because I really do think that there is a chance that something like this has gone on. Now, I don't know this, so I don't want anybody to kind of misquote this or, or say that I am saying that there's a problem. But you look at the situation and you look at the high esteem in which Mikel Arteta held Emil Smith-Rowe when he first arrived at the club. The decision to give him the big contract, the decision to uh, give him the number 10 shirt, all of that stuff. And you look at where he is now and you wonder what has changed over that period of time. Now, I know that Emil Smith-Rose had fitness issues. And I'm one of the people that's been saying, well, you know, if he's only got 15, 20 minutes at top level in the tank, then you shouldn't be starting him in games. You can't start him in a game. But why wouldn't you look at him today and think at some point in the match that he could be an option to change it? What does it show? It shows either a lack of trust in the guy's talent which I find hard to believe given the relationship that he and Arteta had at the beginning and the high esteem, as I mentioned, that Arteta obviously held him in previously. Or something else has gone on that we just don't know about. And although I don't know this, I'm starting to think that maybe there is something more to this. Is it an attitude thing? Is it, you know, I, I don't know. I really don't know. But it is baffling that, you know, he's never seen as an option Yet shoehorning Trossard into midfield is seen as an option. Um, bringing Reese Nelson on is seen as an option, um, and and something that Mikel prefers over a Smith Rowe. It, you know, to me, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And the fitness thing is a valid point, and and I've sort of said that that's probably why he only got a few minutes against uh, West Ham United. But surely he was good for at least ten minutes today. Then, do you know what I mean? Like, surely you'd be looking to try and build that up over time. And if his talent can help you as well, then why wouldn't you turn to him? The fact that we don't is is weird um, to me. And it just doesn't make it just doesn't make sense. Um, so, yeah, I am starting to wonder if maybe there is an issue there that we're just uh, we're just unaware of. Who knows? Let's take this one um, from 
Matty Gunner. He says, can we talk about the appalling service from our midfielders and wingers? How are we supposed to feed a striker when we buy one? I completely agree with you on this, by the way. And this is why I just don't subscribe to this idea that signing Ivan Tony for £100 million in January is going to fix all of Arsenal's problems. I think that's a really, really simplistic way of looking at it. And I think actually, you know, it would probably be unwise to go and spend a load of money on that particular profile of player if all we're going to do is stick to the same way we're playing. Let's have it right. When when Eddie Nketiah broke through into the Arsenal team, what was he? What was he? He was a penalty box, fox in the box striker. He wasn't this guy who dropped into midfield, who pulled out left and right, who played on the left wing, played on the right wing. He was a penalty box striker. And the reason you see him dropping deep now and the reason you see him doing different things is because that's what Mikel Arteta's system demands of him. Is signing, for example, Ivan Tony going to lead to Mikel Arteta ripping up his game plan and saying, no, we're going to do it this way now? Or is Ivan Tony or anybody else for that matter going to come in and be asked to do the same things? And so again, you're bringing in someone who would be out of their comfort zone in terms of what they are delivering. I don't think there are many players that can do the Gabriel Jesus role and score 25 goals a season. I think there are very, very few in world football. Roberto Firmino is someone that Gabriel Jesus is often compared to. Now, Roberto Firmino's goal tallies some years were not very good. Um, there's no getting away from that. But the reason it was never spoken about was because of the efficiency of those around him. Your Mo Salas, your Sadio Mane's. Um, they were just so incredibly potent that we didn't really need to talk about what Firmino's goal return was. We were focusing on his facilitation of those players. And to a degree, particularly at certain points last season, that was the same with Jesus. Arsenal were firing on all cylinders. Martinelli couldn't stop scoring. Odegaard couldn't stop scoring. And Saka couldn't stop scoring. So rather than focus on maybe the shortfalls in Gabriel Jesus's game, instead, we focused on the positives. The positives being that he was a great facilitator and those players were performing as a direct consequence of him being in the side as well. So I, I just, I, th I think unless Mikel Arteta is going to change it up in terms of what he demands and expects from his centre forward, then signing someone for whatever amount of money isn't just going to fix this problem overnight. And as you say, which I think is a great point, Matty, even if you bring in that striker, we're going to have to tweak the way we play in order to provide them the service they need to be effective. And there's no guarantee that that works either. I'd love us to sign a striker, but I don't think, unless we're absolutely certain on someone, we should be spending 80 to 100 million pounds this January. And I don't think that Ivan Tony is someone that I feel comfortable with spending that kind of money on. Arteta might see it differently. Arsenal might see it differently. And if they bring him to the club, I'll back him. I'll support the guy, but I just don't see it at this moment in time. Steve Barry says, what's the difference between being found out and piss poor management? <laughs> um, to be honest, I don't think um, you can say it's piss poor management. I, I think that's a, a bit of an overreaction. I think what we're seeing is a manager who's very stubborn with regards to the way that he wants to play. Um, we always hear that Mikel Arteta has a different plan for different games, but I think what what we actually see is a general style of play that is tweaked 
at times, depending on the opposition. But there will be opposition we come up against that Mikel Arteta will believe straight up, just like Pep Guardiola does, just like Arsene Wenger did, that our way of playing is good enough to beat them and we're not going to change. I think where we're going to see now if Mikel Arteta is a good manager is if he changes it up now and does something different to try and and deal with this issue. Because although I talked about this going back a few games, I think it's West Ham and Fulham in which the alarm bells have been ringing, right? You lose at Villa, it isn't a disgrace. You, you get a draw at Liverpool, it's not a disgrace by any stretch of the imagination. The two results that have set the alarm bells ringing are the last two, and they should prompt Mikel Arteta into action, you hope. Um, you hope anyway. Okay, uh, let's go back into uh, the rest of the live chat box and see uh, what you guys are saying. Um, shake safe. Look at, Listen to this. You wanted the Havertz signing. Fans like you are the problem. Oh, man. Th th this stuff makes me die. Like, th this kind of comment just makes me laugh because I'm the problem because uh, I'm happy with Kai Havertz. You've got a Mesa Ozil profile picture in 2023. <laughs> Talk about um, holding on to something and holding on to, to some kind of agenda. Look at Arsenal Football Clubs. I'm just bringing it up on the screen. That, that's the delay right now. I'm just bringing this up because I want to make sure um, I can show you the evidence when I say this as well, um, just to kind of back up my point. Kai Havertz, this season, has got five goals. He's got more goals than Martinelli. And he's got one less than... Um, it, this is in all competitions. He's got one less than, than Leandro Trossard. But you will pick out Kai Havertz as the one that is the problem. No, Kai Havertz is not a problem. Kai Havertz got us back into the game at Luton that we went on to then win. Kai Havertz got us three points at Brentford. Kai Havertz has contributed um, over the last eight to nine, nine weeks, ten weeks. At the beginning, I admit, I was the first to say that he wasn't being um, as effective as, as he could have been, as he should have been, and that we needed to find a way of getting more out of him. But in the last eight to ten weeks, I think he's been very effective, with the exception of one or two games. But who's been effective in all of those games? So I think, that, again, this idea of digging out individuals when we clearly have a wider issue that needs resolving is just the, the type of petty and childish reaction that we get whenever we don't win a football match. And it drives me up the wall. Think about why, as a team, we're not functioning. It isn't because of Kai Havertz, for God's sake. I said earlier on in the pod that I think it's it's impacted the balance in our team. And I think one of the big reasons, I've always said this, Mikel Arteta went and bought Declan Rice and signed Kai Havertz because he felt that the two of them could complement one another. So the point I mean is that he would have looked at what Granit Xhaka brought to the team. And because of the mobility and the robustness that Declan Rice has, he'd have gone, okay, I can get away with having a more forward-thinking left eight in Kai Havertz because the combination of him and Rice should balance things out a little bit more. That, that That's what I believe. And I think that for the most part this season, that's been okay. And it's been fine. I've just always felt that in the very elite games, you probably needed to revert back to type. In which case, I would have loved to see Partey as the six and Rice as the eight. 
problem is Thomas Partey hasn't been fit. So these are things that you need to factor in as well. Thomas Partey is a wonderful player. Jurian Timber is a wonderful player. And we've been without those guys for a long, long time. And probably still for a period of time longer. So we've been a little bit unlucky as well with the timing of stuff. It's not like we've been without Timber uh, or Partey, or they've been out at different times. There's been times where we've been without both. We've been without Tommy Asu, and and that's just upset the balance of things. And that's why I'm I'm urging Mikel Arteta to kind of think on his feet and figure out slightly different solutions so that we are less predictable, so that our weaknesses are less obvious. And I just don't feel that he's been able um, to to do that in in the last few weeks. Uh, Sport Genius says, think you missed my super chat, Harry. Let me scroll back, mate. So sorry if I did. Um, just trying to just trying to find it. Bear with me. Um, do you mind just uh, writing whatever you wrote again? And I'll make sure that I read it. Because if I'm scrolling back through the chat, it's going to take me an age to try and find it while we're live. Um, so I'll keep an eye out for your name. So just put the same comment, basically. And I'll make sure um, I read it. I'll make sure that I, I read it for sure. Um, Steve Barrow says, it's not Havertz. We missed Zinchenko today. We did miss Zinchenko today. Um, we did. And and that's the thing, right? That's why this all becomes so... Co- when I say that this is far more complex and nuanced than going, Kai Havertz is the problem, or Mikel Arteta got this wrong, or Ben White is the problem, or Martinelli's the problem, or Trossard's the problem. The fact that... Last week, we're talking about Zinchenko being a weak link defensively. And this week, we're talking about him missing. In itself, tells you how complex this whole thing is and how nuanced this whole thing can be. So that should teach you not to be knee-jerk, not to be overreactionary, not to call for people to be sacked, not not to call for people to be sold on the basis of individual games week by week. Because one week... You're sitting there saying Zinni is a problem. And the next week we're talking about how actually we've missed him. And whether it was Tomiyasu at left back today rather than Kivior, we still would have missed Zinchenko. You know why? Because Tomiyasu can't play that inverted role to the same level. It's better defensively, yeah. But again, we lose something. We lose that ball progression from a central area. It's all about balance. When Partey's in the team, I believe Partey is a better ball progressor than Declan Rice in terms of his passing. Declan Rice progresses the ball by carrying it, and it's fine, but it's different. If you have Partey in the team, you don't miss Zinchenko as much. Do you see what I mean? It's about balances and relationships. I think that's really, really important. Um, What else have we got in the chat? Um... Steve Barris says, I don't get the, um, I don't get the sarcasm. No, but it was a valid point. I thought it was a valid point. Um, Steve Stone says, do you feel our possession-based football has been taken to the extreme? Fear of losing the ball seems to be having a huge impact. Yeah, I think, you know, we're obviously looking for more control. And I think in theory, that's a good thing. And, you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier on. We've been able to bring down our XG against this season quite significantly because we've been in control. It's taken away from our XG4, which has obviously led to, which is obviously a result of less chances being created and all the rest of it. So there is a bit of a balance that you need to find here. Um, But yeah, um, you know, there's obviously a wider issue with the system, with the way we're playing um, and with 
with the fact that, you know, it just feels like so many players have dropped off in terms of their performances all at the same time. It's not like Saka's been like a house on fire and Martinelli's been off it and then you can kind of live with it. Or the other way around, Martinelli's in great form, but Saka isn't. Uh, you know, Jesus is in good form, but, you know, one of the wingers is off. Or Havertz is in great form, but, you know, it's, it's it just feels like everything's gone a bit flat at the same time. And that's why I talk about fatigue. That's why I talk about some of the other factors that I've mentioned. It's not because... I am trying to make excuses or defend them. It's because I'm trying to figure out what has actually gone wrong because, you know, I want it to be put right. You know, not that Mikel Arteta is going to listen to me, but I, I'm one of those people, right? I think there are a lot of people in life and this is a wider point and nothing to do with football, but I think it has some relevance to the attitude of some people when it comes to their football team. I'm very much a person that if I have a problem, I don't sit there and feel sorry for myself. I don't sit there and moan about it. I don't sit there and blame other people. I will try and figure out how I can put it right. Your energy is better spent trying to find a solution than it is dwelling on what's happened. And what's happened now has happened. And we need to take lessons from this game, from the West Ham game, from the Villa game, from all the games that we've dropped points in. And we need to put things into practice and have a bit of a reset. Maybe having an FA Cup game next and a distraction from the league will do us good. And we need to reset and go again with a slightly different and tweaked strategy. We need to keep people guessing. And we're not at the moment. It's all become obvious. It's all become clear. It's all become predictable. And that's kind of my final thought on this. Players individually are not performing at the level we know they can. And that obviously has a big impact. But generally, I think the wider point is that we're too predictable now. And I think that we have run some of these players into the ground. And that is because, A, we've had some injuries to some players, which meant that others couldn't get the rest that they needed at certain points. But also, it's a bit on Mikel Arteta because I think there are players in that squad that he tells us he trusts, but the reality is that he doesn't. And that's where I think you can take a bit of an issue um, with him. Let me take a couple more comments. Um, Sports Genius sent in his super chat. Sorry, I missed it the first time around, mate. He says, big up, Harry. Tough game today. Uh, um, Raul Jimenez showed our strikers how to play centre forward in this league. What are your thoughts on Saka and Martinelli switching sides? Would we get better crosses? Yeah, we discussed that a little bit earlier on. But now that you, the, the way you've put it uh, in terms of would we get better crosses out of them, I don't know that that is... I don't know that that is seen as being that relevant in Mikel Arteta's mind. And this might be why he doesn't switch them, by the way. And I'm I'm just thinking on the spot now. This has just come to my mind now. You've highlighted that, you know, if they, they're on their stronger sides in terms of not having to cut in, we might get a better quality of cross. The problem is if you have a centre forward like we do, who isn't a six-yard box kind of player, who is going to drop deep, who is going to drift left and right, what would be the use in putting the ball into the box early? I think the idea is that in cutting in, they can get shots off from angles, um, that they can provide cutbacks um, because they can go on the inside of people, but they can also go around the outside and have the time to look up and cut back. I just, yeah, I just think to myself, like if we were built in a slightly different way with a slightly different profile of striker, that could be something that Mikel Arteta goes for. And I'm not saying it's, it's right what he's doing because I, I would still try it even with the personnel that we have now. 
But I'm just wondering if that's what he thinks. I'm just wondering if he looks at his centre forward options and goes, well, none of you are dominant in the air. None of you are going to win headers if we work the ball into the box early. Um, Sir Alex Ferguson, Manchester United, mid-90s to mid-2000s style. Like He probably thinks that that is something that isn't going to bring any fruit for the labour. So maybe that's why um, we don't see it. Um, The Soul Whisperer says, uh, Harry, we've come so far with Arteta. He's brought us up to challenging in the league. Let's keep supporting the team and the manager. We're just going through a bad patch. We need to stick together. Yeah, and look, if you want to look at it glass half full rather than glass half empty, we had this dip last season in March, April, and it cost us. Maybe it's better that we get it out of the way now. I don't know. I'm just trying to look at it from a glass half full perspective. You've always got to try and find positives because you need motivation to 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 move on and to carry on. So you need to always end on positives, I think, when you're analysing games. And, you know, if if you, you know, well, you have to scratch quite deep this time to find them. But I think the fact that, you know, maybe this dip is coming a little bit earlier, it, it might be a better thing. It, it might be a better thing. If we finish, uh, this is going to be a statement that's going to piss people off, but I'm going to say it anyway. If we finish second to Manchester City again, what would your reaction be? Let me know in the comments. I know we've run over time, but I'm enjoying this. If we were to finish second to Manchester City, would you class this season as a failure for Arsenal Football Club? Bearing in mind that Manchester City are the best team in the world officially, are the treble holders, have arguably the greatest manager of all time, have the best centre forward in the world, according to a lot of people, have arguably one of the best players in the world in Kevin De Bruyne to come back. If Arsenal were to finish second to them, again, by, I don't know, five to eight, five to six points, would you class that as a failure? I don't think I would class that as a failure. I'd be disappointed and I'd be frustrated because it would be us repeating the same fate as last season. But you've got to look at the landscape sometimes and what we are up against. Again, and I'll make this point once more because it's valid, because it has to be made for all of the time that this investigation around Manchester City goes on. We are talking about a team that may well have been bending the rules for the best part of eight years in order to get themselves into the position that they're in today might have, allegedly have. That, that, do, do you see what I mean? Do you see where I'm going with this? Like the, the point is that sometimes as a football club, you have a ceiling because of what else is going on around you. Like, do you think that when, let's say, let's, let's take Scottish football as an example, okay? Like back in the heyday when... Rangers and Celtic were going at it every single year. Obviously, they're the two biggest, most powerful clubs. It is always those two that go for the title. But in those years where the old firm were actually quite strong, you'd look at them, they had the likes of Henrik Larsson and there was decent players there. Did Aberdeen fans used to see their team maybe finish third and go, that's a failure? Or did they look at it and go, well, given what's going on, you, you can't actually compete with the old firm because... The setup, the landscape doesn't allow for that. Do you not do you not think that they would have been disappointed, obviously, but do you think they would have been hounding their 
owners and their managers out because of that? Or would there at some point have to be some kind of acceptance that that is your ceiling as a football club? Not to say that you should settle for that and that you should never aspire for more. But that if a manager is is achieving something, you have to look at it realistically and say, maybe there's a reason that he can't achieve more. I don't know. I'm just asking the question. For example, if Arsenal went and won the Champions League this season, would you care that we lost to Fulham today? Because I wouldn't. I really wouldn't. I have desperately all of my life wanted to see Arsenal win the Champions League. And, you know, we're only going to have a certain amount of off nights, off off games in a season where we just really weren't at it. And if, we're, again, we're looking for positives and we're looking for, um, you know, glass half full kind of rhetorics off the back of this, I'd rather that one of those off days came away at Fulham in the Premier League at the halfway point of the season than in a Champions League knockout tie from which we could never recover. I'm just trying to look at it glass half full. Again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't aspire to win the league. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to win the league. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be demanding that Arsenal push on. All I'm saying is, is that sometimes you have to look at the context of things and you have to look at the landscape around you. And then you can determine whether something is a failure or a success or just on par. If Arsenal finish second this season to Manchester City, I won't say it's a failure. I won't say it's a success. I will say it's what I expected him to achieve given where we were last season. And there hasn't been that much regression, if any regression at all. If he finishes third behind Liverpool as well, then I'll say, hold on a minute, we were the second best team. Liverpool were miles off it. They've been able to bridge that gap over the course of one season and we've fallen further back. And I also like to assess things on points totals as well because I think that's important. I think that's important. I think tables can make you seem better or worse than you are because of what's going on around you. Again, you have to take the landscape into account, but that can skew things sometimes. So I like to look at points totals. How many points are we picking up? I like to look at some of the underlying metrics to be able to figure out whether we're better or worse than we were last season. But anyway, going to leave it there. Obviously, really, really disappointing result. Um, awful way to end 2023. But you know what? Overall, 2023, uh, it's been a great year. Arsenal have progressed dramatically. That's why we're having a discussion now about the fact that we might have blown the title race. You know, that that wouldn't have happened five, six years ago. So we should be pleased with that at the very least. Um, thank you for all your amazing support over the course of the years, even those that come in the chat just to give me grief. Um, you're all welcome. Love you all. Thank you so much. Um, really, really uh, appreciate all the support, all the love. Um, and uh, and I look forward uh, to speaking to you guys again tomorrow. And we are going to bring you another pod tomorrow because the transfer window opens. Um, we're going to do two pods tomorrow. We are going to do a review uh, of 2023 through an Arsenal lens. Um, and we're also going to um, bring you some of the latest transfer stories as well. And I'm sure there'll be plenty floating about after what we witnessed today, particularly in the striking department. Anyway, thank you guys so, so much. Love to every single one of you. Have a great New Year's Eve, whatever you're doing. Enjoy it. Um, and uh, wishing you all a healthy, happy and prosperous 2024. And I will see you all on the other side. Take care of yourselves. Uh, have a good one. Goodbye. Goodbye.